Okay, let me cut into those uh, conversations, uh, which hopefully you'll be able to uh, pick up uh, later on. As in case people are new to the globe, uh, we do have food afterwards. There's never a need to rush off, so do please stay and chat to people and get to know people. Okay, uh, we're just going to read a couple more portions uh, from the book of Habakkuk. They used to say in church that happiness was uh, sitting next to someone who knew where Habakkuk was. Um, uh, Deborah very kindly told you that it was on page 940. Uh, most of you were either looking behind me or on your phones, but if you are looking in the church Bible, um, it's now on page 941. Uh, and I'm just going to read um, chapter 2. Uh, verses 15 to 20, and then the final uh, three verses of chapter 3. So Habakkuk 2 at verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed uh, lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And then finally, the end of chapter three, perhaps the verses of Habakkuk that maybe more of you are familiar with, where the book finishes like this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray now as we uh, think about it for these next few moments that, Lord, you will speak to us clearly through it and you will show us something of your wonderful character. Amen. Okay, so a spoiler alert um, for some of you, if you were here a few months ago uh, when I led a service, as you will have heard uh, this brief opening illustration before, but sometimes children get us thinking a little girl on the way home from church turned to her mum. Mummy, she said, that the preacher's sermon this afternoon confused me. Hopefully it won't be a story repeated uh, later as you leave. Why, why was that? Asked mum quizzically. Well, he said that God is bigger than we are. Is that true? Yes, that, that's true. He also said that God lives within us. Is that true too? Yeah. Well... If God is bigger than us, and he lives in us, wouldn't he show through? And it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Sometimes, I think even as Christians, we forget how big God is. In fact, we, we see him as the opposite, like the, the final piece in one of those Russian dolls. God in a box. 
And I hope our time in Habakkuk this afternoon will help us to counter that. Uh, We're not going to cover the whole book, much to your relief, uh, but we are going to consider what we learn about God and his character from Habakkuk. Uh, The book begins, as as Joe said, with a, a perplexed Habakkuk. The land of Judah is in turmoil, wandering far from God, and God seems to be inactive. What are you going to do about it, God? Are you powerless? Don't you care? The Lord gives him an answer, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, about the impending judgment that he will bring on the land through the Babylonians. And it's not the answer that Habakkuk was expecting, or indeed the answer that he wants. He's left with more questions. No, no Lord, you can't, you can't judge using the Babylonians. They're far worse than we are. You know, often we have questions too, if we're honest. And, and Habakkuk models for us two responses, which in the midst of all our questions are always right. Firstly, take your questions about God to God. He is big enough to deal with them. The danger is that when we're puzzled, we fall back on our own suppositions or we listen to what the world has to say. We are drawn by the devil's lies. But faith comes from hearing the word of God. That's what Habakkuk does. If you drop your eye to chapter 2 and verse 1, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So he takes his questions about God to God. And secondly, in his wrestling, he affirms what he knows to be true about God. This is perhaps most clearly seen in chapter 1, verse 12, where we read this. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. And that verse will be the focal point for our thinking this afternoon. Habakkuk Habakkuk feels as if he's in a swamp, but he starts to clamber onto solid ground. He gets up on the ramparts. What do I know about God? Do you remember studying equations at school? If W plus X plus Y minus Z equals five, what is W? And no, the answer is not, who cares? Well, actually, my question is impossible to answer because we don't know any of the variables. But if we know that X is two and Y is seven and Z is five, then we can see that W is one. Trust me. And it's the same for Habakkuk. He can't see what God is doing in this situation, but he reminds himself of what he knows about God. If I start with what I do know about God, I can come to some conclusion about what I don't know. And focusing on God's character is instrumental in Habakkuk's journey through this book. From the doubting of chapter one, how long, why? through the waiting, the learning, and finally the trusting of chapter three 
Even though the fig tree does not bud, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. So let's spend some time reveling in God's character, reminding ourselves that whatever circumstances we face this afternoon, and they'll be different for all of us, one thing is constant. To quote a a children's song that, well, I'm old, but some of you might remember, our God is a great big God. People know that one? Yeah? And if you're a Christian this afternoon, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue you from your sin, our God is a great big God, and he holds you in his hands. Now, of course, preachers like to tie down their sermons to three neatly packaged points, but how do you tie the character of God down? You know, in a sense, I don't want to provide a neat package. I'd rather we left with a sense of marvel and wonder, being richly encouraged than with all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. But just to help us on our way, let me highlight five things. Take heart, it was going to be nine. And, <laughs> and later, I will give us a hopefully helpful way of remembering them. So firstly, and most briefly, our God is eternal. Our God is eternal. O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? Habakkuk 1 verse 12. Habakkuk reminds himself that his God was there before history started. Do you know that the the greatest throwaway line ever written is in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 16? He also made the stars. What what more can be said? Since humans measure everything in time, it's, it's very hard for us to conceive of a reality that had no beginning, but has always been and will continue forever. But our God is eternal, and Habakkuk stands on that truth. We read Habakkuk through the lens of the New Testament, and as Christians, those whose trust is implicitly in Jesus Christ, we don't worship one who was just created 2,000 years ago. No, as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, for by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1. That's big. Our minds may not be able to fully grasp it, but it doesn't make it any less true. Our God is eternal. And secondly, our God is set apart. That's the literal meaning of the word holy, my God, my holy one. It highlights the distinctiveness of God, the sense in which he is other, above and beyond. It highlights the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. As Habakkuk wrestled with the the quandary of this impending judgment via the Babylonians, he reminds himself that God is holy. That kind of God can never do anything wrong. He has knowledge of things that I simply don't. And I think it's right to say that the moment we fully understand God, he ceases to be God. He ceases to be worthy of our worship. A God we fully understand 
is one we have made ourselves. Any God who did exactly what we asked when we asked wouldn't be God. He would be a genie. Yes, Habakkuk's oracle comes prior to the time that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, walked this earth. What wonder there is that the Holy One of God came to the last place in his universe that you might expect to find him. Into the wretchedness of a world torn by sin, swapping the splendor of heaven for an animal's feeding trough. And yes, if we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the wonder is that we can know him and we can be in relationship with him, but he will always be God, a great big God, not God in a box. Perfect wisdom, perfect justice, perfect love. How big is your God? There is always more of him to explore as our faith grows and develops. He gives us so much more than he needs to. He doesn't need to deal with us at all. Isaiah tells us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, Isaiah 55. Yet in all his holiness, in all his perfection, he calls us to come to him and trust him. But our God is holy. One of the other things that we always did at school, apart from pointless equations, was to endlessly compare and contrast two pieces of literature. Do you remember? Usually Shakespeare. Why did Shakespeare use these words in this scene, but those words in another? Well, probably because his tea was ready both times and he just wanted to finish the sections quickly. But exam question setters never agreed with that. But I want to compare and contrast now two bits of literature from Habakkuk chapter 2. The first one says this, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. And compare that with what comes next. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Whatever we make our idols from, money, career, security, family, ourselves, God makes it clear here that he is God alone. Our own creations that cannot speak against a God so awesome that we are silent before him. Our God is set apart. As Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 11, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Our God is eternal. Our God is set apart. Our God, thirdly, is unchanging. 
Our God is unchanging, or our God is faithful. We sang faithful one earlier. Or our God keeps his promises. There's actually a a debate about the translation in chapter 1, verse 12, and the, the new version of the NIV actually says of God, you will not die, which is clearly true. Uh, The previous translation of the NIV and the New King James and the ESV all have Habakkuk saying, we will not die, which is also true. What does he mean? Surely when God has just announced the Babylonian judgment, this is nothing short of complacent arrogance. No. What Habakkuk is standing on is the truth that whatever is about to befall Judah... God will always preserve a remnant of those who were truly his. Even if they physically lost their earthly lives, those whose faith was in him would never be separated from him. Habakkuk knew that God was a God of covenant, the covenant first made with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob that we looked at when we went through Genesis. Then the Lord took Abraham outside, we're told in Genesis 15, and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and credited it to him as righteousness. Whatever God's judgment on Judah would look like, it would be just, but in line with God's promise. Habakkuk knew God as the promise-keeping God. He stands on solid ground, He even uses the covenantal name of God, the Lord. Again, Habakkuk stands before the days that Christ walked the earth, before the days when the Holy Spirit was given to all believers, marking them with a seal, guaranteeing their inheritance, and he proclaims, we will not die. In eternity, God has purposed to call out a people for himself, A people who would live, Habakkuk 2.4, by faith or by faithfulness. That's another sermon for another day. But God is unchanging. God is faithful. And Habakkuk knew that God would not change at this time, however it might look in the presenting circumstances. And of course, God was as good as his word. Judah was carted off into exile many experiencing God's eternal judgment for their willful refusal to repent, but a remnant was preserved, humbled, and then called by God to return to the land. Ironically, you can read about that in the book of Ezra, uh, where it speaks of those whose heart God had moved and which we've been looking at over recent weeks. What are the differences between Judah pre-Babylonian invasion and the UK today? Not a lot. Maybe the line should more accurately be drawn between Judah as the people of God and the, the visible liberal church today. What are the differences? Not a lot. Why does God not act? When the law of God seems paralyzed, refuted by biblical scholars, ignored by church leaders, when the gospel is pushed to the margins by a mocking society, when the person of Christ is disparaged, where do you go? Even in your own Christian walk, when your prayers don't seem answered, 
when the national situation deteriorates, when the sister that you've prayed for for many years is not converted, when your relationships are hurting, where do you go? To the one who is faithful, to the one who is unchanging. Is being a Christian today a pointless exercise? No, because God has said, I will build my church from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And he is unchanging. Will true believers who keep clinging in trust fall by the wayside when it all gets too much? No, because Christ has said that none that the Father has given him will be plucked from his hand. Yes, we may be disciplined by God because he loves his children. Yes, we will go through trials That's one of God's ways of refining our faith that is of greater worth than gold, of making us more like Christ. But our God is unchanging. Our God is faithful. He cannot do anything but keep his word. Habakkuk describes him as a rock. We sang it. Habakkuk knew the scripture from Deuteronomy 32. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. A rock, stability, a place of refuge. Our God is unchanging. Yesterday, today, forever, Jesus is the same. Our God is eternal. Our God is set apart. Our God is unchanging. And fourthly, our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. You don't mean that, do you, Habakkuk? You're about to be invaded by a dreaded and fearsome people, guilty men whose own might is their God. Surely things are out of God's control. The divine clockmaker who's now nodded off on a warm Sunday afternoon, who has had power taken from him. You know, maybe Habakkuk's quivering voice betrayed his doubts as he sought to clamber out of the swamp onto the ramparts, as he sought to complete his equation. Yet by the end of the book, he's left in no doubt. It's where he finishes, the sovereign Lord is my strength. And this book should leave us in no doubt too. God is on his throne, always has been, is now, and always will be. Did the Babylonians think that as they raced through Assyria, Egypt, and on towards Jerusalem to destroy the temple and push Judah into exile in 586 BC? Of course not. They completely failed to realize that they were being used by God, and they went around patting themselves on the back. Yet they only had breath because of God. It is God who says, I am raising up the Babylonians. You have appointed them. You have ordained them, says Habakkuk. Habakkuk is stunned by the fact that God is raising up the Babylonians. Why are you letting the wicked prosper? You don't know what they're like. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm in control, and their judgment is coming. And come it did, as in just five decades' time, Cyrus, king of Persia, diverted the Euphrates, marched into the city of Babylon, conquered it, and decreed that the exiles could return. And Babylon was gone. Oh, and by the way, that Cyrus, who God had said 150 years before he even ruled in Isaiah's prophecy, that he would use him in this way. God's perfect timing. 
You know, God is never late. Some of you, but not many, will remember in the old days before mobile phones, when you planned to meet someone in the evening, let's say under the clock at Waterloo Station, and you actually had to make the arrangements in the morning. What time? Where? None of this, I'll phone you when I arrive, yes, I'm walking towards you, I can see you, nonsense that we have now. And the question in those days was always, how long would you wait under the clock of Waterloo Station if your friend was late? Were they delayed on a train? Had they stood you up? Had they forgotten? How long would you wait? And the answer really would depend on what you knew about their character, how reliable they were. That was the judgment you made. They said they would come, they will be coming. Or, it's Anne again. She'll have gone home to watch Casualty and forgotten all about it, I'm off. God is sovereign. God is fully trustworthy and reliable, and God is never late. Chapter 2, verse 3, he tells Habakkuk that judgment will fall on the Babylonians. It will surely come and will not delay, he says. When did Christ come to earth? We're told in Galatians, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Who was in charge of the events of the cross, the central point of human history? Acts 2 tells us this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. It doesn't matter where you look, God is sovereign. And God himself points us forward in the, the midst of his proclamation of judgment on the Babylonians uh, in chapter 2. Points us forward to a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Commentator has described that as being like an orchid flowering on a sewage farm. The day is coming when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Christian believer, do you doubt that? You know, we can't always see where God is at work. We can't always trace him. Sometimes life does look like the back of a Persian rug, all those loose threads. But you can be certain that on the other side, the side that God sees, it's a glorious tapestry. Be greatly encouraged. Our God is eternal, set apart, unchanging, sovereign, and finally, you'll all be pleased to know, our God is just. Habakkuk's oracle makes it clear that sin and evil will not triumph in the end. It couldn't, given that God is holy. There will always be judgment for the unrepentant. They will not get away with it forever. Whether that be the land of Judah, the Babylonians of the 6th century BC, the lawmakers of 21st century Britain, or the great Babylon that is used in Revelation as the symbol of rebellion against God. And the reality of God's judgment is that it will be totally just because he is the one in possession of all the facts. In a sense, 
We see God's judgment in many ways today as, as men and women are given over to the sinful desires of their hearts as they exchange the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1. But one day, God's judgment against sin will be final. And it's a judgment that we all deserve too. And it's right that we stop and think this afternoon that the only way we can be safe from God's judgment against sin is to be found in Christ. How in a nutshell, God who made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are only two ways to live, faith or pride. Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous will live by faith. Or the other half of Habakkuk 2, 4, see, he is puffed up. I'll do it my way. God goes on to explain in the rest of chapter 2 about the judgment that will fall on the Babylonians. Chapter 2, 16, we read, the cup from the Lord's right hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. That's a picture too of the judgment we all one day face outside of Christ if we refuse to turn from our sin and put our trust in him. Maybe that's you this afternoon. You know that you're living a life that displeases God. But the wonder is that on the cross, the place where God's wrath and God's mercy, Habakkuk 3.2, where God's justice and love meet the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took that cup of judgment so that you didn't have to. He took the punishment that should have been ours. Sin will be paid for. You can pay for your own or you can accept that Christ has paid for it on your behalf. You can know complete forgiveness by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and living for him. Will you start there today? And can I also say a word to any who may be trusting in religion this afternoon, in impressing God by your good works. We haven't got time to go there, but Paul in Acts 13 uses words from this book of Habakkuk to challenge those who think they can get by in their own goodness rather than trusting in the cross of Christ and living a life of faith in him. You can't. There is no one righteous other than Christ. And if you're a Christian this afternoon, trusting in Jesus, be reminded again of what you owe him. The judgment you deserve, that I deserved, falls upon his shoulders. Nothing of your own you bring, simply to his cross you cling. And our lives should be, as we go into this new week, ones of daily repentance, of staying close to him in faith. Revel in the joy of being able to use a word that we have so far missed out from Habakkuk 1.12. You can see it on the screen there. He is my God. He is my God. You know, Habakkuk was taken aback by the proclamation of God's justice can't be serious, God. You can't use the Babylonians. They're worse than us. How could God use an unholy instrument? It's a question that, in many ways, we can't answer because we're not God. But you know, in one sense, he does it all the time in our lives as Christians. Because every time he uses me or you, he's using an unholy instrument. 
but one counted as righteous only through Jesus. Never forget, never forget that we owe everything we have to God's grace. And that must make a difference in our lives and how we see other people. Where does God live today? In a sense, where is his temple? It's in us. And to go back to our opening question, the question is, will he show through? The righteous will live by faith and one day, Christian believer, you will be with him forever, whether through death or when he comes again. And come again, he will. People will mock, say, where is this Jesus? But he's not slow in keeping his promise. He just wants many to come to repentance. He won't be late. And what are we to do in the meantime as we close when these last days are hard? We are to live by faith, trusting in his word and holding on to the fact that our God is a great big God. Eternal, set apart, unchanging, sovereign and just. I promised that I'd give you a hopefully helpful way to remember what we've thought about this afternoon. Some of you may be onto it already. Sometimes life does seem mixed up, doesn't it? And if you take the initial letters of our five points this afternoon, you end up with E, S, U, S, J. God has shown us the way to put things in the right order and perspective. And it's not only in Sunday school where the answer is Jesus, the one who is just, eternal, set apart, unchanging, and sovereign. Amen.